COVID-19 is a devastating example of a crisis which ripples through regions and countries, affecting all aspects of our lives. The impacts of the pandemic have hit some communities harder than others, especially in the global south. Fortunately, we're seeing signs of resilience emerging from many affected communities. There's ongoing mobilization to combat the direct and indirect impacts of the pandemic. And this could be crucial when navigating this exceptional situation we're in. My name is Albert Nordström, and with me today I have Rafael Calderón Contreras from the Metropolitan Autonomous University in Mexico and Sibel Quiros from the Global Resilience Partnership and Stockholm Resilience Center. Together, we'll take a closer look at some of these communities and how they have responded to this crisis. What can we learn from them? And how can we build social resilience for similar events in the future? Welcome to Rethink Talks. Welcome to Rethink Talks. Welcome, Rafa. Early morning in Mexico City. And uh, welcome, Sibel, here in the studio in Stockholm. Before we get started, um, it'd be great just to get a quick introduction of yourselves. And maybe we can start with you, Sibel. Uh, yes. So my name is Sibel Kirosh, and uh, I'm a researcher at the Global Resilience Partnership and the Stockholm Resilience Center. Uh, and um, the main focus of my work is basically to uh, try to understand how can we improve um, the resilience of food production landscapes and the livelihoods of the people that live in those landscapes to sort of shocks and surprises. And currently, my main focus is on sort of regions that are very vulnerable or fragile. And how about you, Rafa? Well, first of all, thank you so much for, for inviting me. Uh, it's, it's a great pleasure to me to talk to you about, you know, these issues of resilience I'm Rafa Calderón Contreras, and I'm based in Mexico City. I'm a professor at the Social Science Department of the Autonomous Metropolitan University. And my main focus of research is social ecological systems with a predominance of urban systems. And the nexus between ecosystem services, uh, transformation, and the way in which we can build a more vibrant, resilient future for, for cities, and in general, social ecological systems. We're going to be talking a lot about resilience um, in this episode, right? So maybe we can start by taking it from the basics and uh, give our audience a bit of a primer, um, a definition of resilience, a simple definition. And Rafa, what does resilience mean to you? Well, resilience comes from, uh, from, the, understanding, from the understanding of complexity, really. So the idea of, of using resilience as a, as a theoretical uh, backbone is to understand how systems behave and how to how they react to certain changes. So for me, social ecological resilience is, is the ability of social ecological systems to withstand changes and maintain their uh, main tra traits of, uh, of identity and feedbacks. Uh, maybe the most important thing about the concept itself and that is more relevant for, for social resilience is the idea of how these systems react to changes. Um, and um, basically that's, that's, that's the idea of, of, uh, of resilience that I, that I use in my research. 
And Sibel, um, how would you define resilience based on your research and your experience? Yeah, I think like a simple way of putting it is like, I like to think on this metaphor of, uh, uh, you know, a boat that is facing a, a storm, right? Mm-hmm. You can be in a big cruise boat and you have this sort of false idea of stability. When the storm comes, you cannot avoid it. That's exactly how it is. The t- disturbances come and we cannot sort of avoid them or um, strike them forever. So in the end, you actually have to navigate the storm. And I would say that resilience is that capacity, is that adaptive capacity to navigate a storm uh, without losing your identity. You don't want to lose your boat. But importantly, I think it's just that, you know, where you end at the end of your journey or at the end of the storm, it's a different point from the point where you started. And that's exactly the same thing with resilience or with the crisis. You go through a crisis and you end up being, you know, something slightly different. You can still have your identity as a system, as a community, but there was change. So Mm. I think that's how I would define it. (laughs) Thanks. So the term resilience, right, it it has its roots in in ecology and it's come to be used in much broader systems, economic systems, social systems. We talk about social ecological systems. Rafa mentioned that in his definition. And you have different sources of resilience, right? So from the ecological component, a source of resilience would be biodiversity, for example. If we think about sources of social resilience, could we give some examples of that? Sibel. Um, yes. So I think, again, like social resilience is a combination of sort of, you know, you can say that it's a combination of the degree of exposure, how much you are exposed to a particular disturbance. So like if you live in an area that, you know, it's very affected by climate change, you're very exposed, right? And then your adaptive capacity. So your capacity of sort of adapting to the changing circumstances. Um, And that adaptive capacity, um, you can have different sources for it. And like some of the main sources of social resilience are like sort of, you know, collaborations. So like you have collaborations with different actors in your networks. Mm-hmm. So you're well connected. Diversity in terms of like diversity of skills, you know, mm-hmm. or diversity of networks or diversity of knowledge uh, types. So that's the kind of things that you need for social um, resilience. There are many, many elements, but I mean, these two as are quite critical, I would say. Um, and then also being aware that institutions play a very important role on social diversity. Um because when you have, once you go from individual to collective, uh, you know, institutions are playing this mediating role of providing, you know, skills, assets, uh, financial flexibility, sort of all like the sort of um, supporting structures that can sort of um, confine resilience to a society. Thanks, Sibel. And Rafa, anything, anything to add when it comes to yeah. you know, the sources of social resilience? Yeah, to me, maybe the, the, the main source of social resilience is self-organization. So uh, you see it every day in local communities, the way in which they self-organize to, to, yeah, to face change uh, and the way in which this self-organization is a trait that in turns provides um, action, you know, like common action for, for acting uh, in the face of, of change. There are lots of there. There have been a lot of discussion about the components of, of social ecological resilience. To me, there are three musketeers of these components, which is connectivity, something that Sibel has has touched on on her comment. Uh, connectivity, diversity, and feedbacks. 
So these are the three main, let's say, building blocks, blocks of, of, of social ecological resilience. But maybe the, the main characteristic, the main trait of, of resilience itself is the ability of self-organized. Self-organization is basic for, for, for every uh, resilient component. Okay, thanks. So let's let's go to to the pandemic, which is is crippling big parts of the world. Um, it's had major disruptions globally. Um, but the pandemics has hit especially hard in local communities, um, especially in the global south. Any reflections, any examples of that, Rafa? Um, I'll, I'll start with you. Yeah, well, the, the pandemic is one in a in a generation, um, I would say opportunity even to, to think about the way in which we relate to nature. And uh, we, we're looking at it uh, in, in many different countries in the global south. Um, there have been a lot of uh, distress about the, the patterns of self-organization in local communities that are uh, modified by this pandemic. Uh, certainly one of the things that are making it worse, at least in the case of Mexico and other Latin American countries, is the, uh, the characteristics of inequality, social inequality and poverty are even making worse the, the way in which people are facing this pandemic. Um, taking specifically the case of Mexico, there's a strong correlation in between having uh, uh, or being more vulnerable to, to the pandemic more at risk of, uh, of, of, of getting the virus if you are uh, in a precarious situation in terms of your, uh, your source of job or uh, even your uh, social, social economical status. So um, I would say that this, uh, this event, even though it's a, it's a horrendous uh, crisis that we're facing at a global scale, uh, is actually modifying the way in which local communities are, are organizing themselves to, 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 you know, carry on with their normal lives. And uh, I would say that the, 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 the most important bit of, it, of this is that uh, the social, the situation in which local communities are is, uh, is absolutely uh, uh, primer uh, for understanding the way in which we are facing this, this situation in different contexts. <clears throat> Oh, thanks, Rafa. Uh, Sibel, any reflection on this? I mean, based on the work you're doing with the Global Resilience Partnership, for example, what are some of the trends we're seeing in how local communities are being hit directly and indirectly by, by the pandemic? Yeah, so I guess that um, mainly in these more vulnerable communities, um, there are sort of extra challenges. I mean, it's a challenge for all of us, uh, but there are uh, like... Um, the press there is totally different, right? Um, and I think it's it's at several levels. I mean, even at the health level, you know, um, so sort of beyond just like the risk of getting sick, it's also that preventing the disease is far much harder. People live like in tight spaces uh, with high density of people in small spaces, basically so crowded. Uh, social distancing gets like... Uh, very difficult. Mm. Um, you have many communities without access to water. They cannot have like routines of hand washing. Um, you have like a lot of misinformation um, and also disinformation. Um, so there are like a bunch of like sort of extra challenges. Then uh, uh, exactly as uh, Rafa mentioned also like um, the fact that, well, in these parts of the world, most people depend on this kind of casual income so like on a daily basis and when you have measures like lockdowns and you can 
then you basically lose your sources of income. So like um, there were some stories um, from collected from some of GRP partners uh, from the basically from the front lines of the COVID-19, which were really interesting uh, from local communities. And in one of the cases in the Democratic Republic of Ghana, for instance, they did a survey uh, to households in a city and uh, the results of the survey were saying that, you know, about 98% of the houses uh, of the households didn't have um, enough food <laughs> just mm. before the lockdown. So that means that, you know, if you don't die of the COVID-19, you can actually die of hunger. So it's like, and that's exactly what the big numbers are showing, right? So right now we have like, you know, almost, um, we have like that by the end of 2020, we can have extra 130 million of people um, that become food insecure. Mm. Um, and this is, uh, I mean, this is of course like very, um, very dramatic. So we are talking, there are many research colleagues that are starting to talk about a new pandemic, like a hunger pandemic that will follow the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and also like just to end, so like it's also important to think about that, you know, in many of these areas where institutions are weak, so you don't have like the same state support, you know, that you have in richer parts of the world. Uh, you don't have the same sort of social structures that can support you if you get without a job temporarily or you need to stay home for two weeks or, uh, you know, social contact is really important. So like that's how people cope with crisis, right? Communities go together and uh, and collaborate and Right now, it's a paradox because at the same time, because of the risk of contagious, you should actually keep social distance. So that's really extra challenge also to those local communities. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we could certainly like talk much more about many other things, but I think these are at least some mm. crucial things. It's interesting, Sibel, because you mentioned here already, and I see Rafa is nodding there. I mean, already that... <laughs> Some sources of resilience are being eroded, but some sources of resilience are being mobilized yeah. at this time. And in Mexico and in Latin America, Rafa, are you seeing signs of social resilience being mobilized uh, in the face of COVID-19 pandemic? Absolutely. I mean, I think this question is quite relevant to after Sibel's comments on, on how different social conditions are affecting um, the pandemic. Take the case of Mexico, in which we have over 55% of our jobs in the informal sector. So uh, that 56% of the population doesn't have the chance of staying at home and locking down, right? So the, their array of strategies to facing this pandemic have to, to increase. So uh, what we are looking at in Mexico uh, is that uh, many places are actually changing the way in which we are, for instance, producing and consuming food, right? Uh, people are getting more sensitive about the, the need for improving uh, or, or improving the way in which we produce food. That, that'll be one, one thing. Or another one is the way in which we move in the city, right? Uh, Mexico City has, has seen uh, a decrease in the, in the amount of, uh, of traffic jams uh, that has never happened before in, in the history of the city. Um, Many, many countries in Latin America are building cities, uh, thinking about the car as the main objective rather than the people. And what we're looking at now with the pandemic is that even the way in which we build cities is gonna change. So um, that's what I said, you know, this has to be taken as an opportunity, especially for Latin American countries. 
to think about the way in which we are following development paths towards uh, a more sustainable future. And how about you, Sibel? Have you heard of interesting instances where sources of resilience are are illuminating themselves in light of how the pandemic is hitting um, in these local communities in the global south? Yeah, so I go back again to this uh to this project that I started to tell about, about this, because I, I really think it's, a, it's an interesting project. You have been working with it, Albert, also these stories from the front lines that are being driven by ECAD in collaboration with the Global Resilience Partnership and other partners. And it's, um, there's several examples there, right? Like um, there's several examples of how, you know, um, for instance, like in India, there have been like um, community action um, groups that are led by women <clears throat> sort of, started to see the very negative effects of the pandemic and how they were affecting like vulnerable groups in their community. And they suddenly spot that one group that was being like totally marginalized, right? Was a group were like groups of like rural migrants um, that have come to work in the city. And then the lockdown happened and they just, they lost their job. They didn't have any place to live and they couldn't get back home, right? And, and these women were like, they were actually able to, um, started to have, you know, contact with sort of decision makers at other scales and starting first to distribute food just by themselves, you know, and then uh, once sort of uh, the government find a place for these people to be, they also realized that, okay, they were, they had a place to sleep, but they didn't have enough information. They didn't know they had to do uh, washing hands. So sort of like there's all this sort of mobilization of people that are actually helping with knowledge translation, with it's sort of um, providing food security to marginal groups. Um, there were also like many examples from sort of um, how youth has been mobilizing like mm. in, in several societies, like with quite innovative ideas, how like small youth companies have suddenly been sort of forced to become more digital, right? In in Nepal, for example, there were many examples like that, that they suddenly use support fundings that, the few support fundings they had from the government, they used to buy mobile phones and to educate sort of uh, their uh, their company members or their organization members. And that actually led to a shift, right? So they actually stepped step up. They were um, in the digitalization process, which might have a good effect in the future, right? Um, so there were like several examples like that and how people were very fast able to self-organize like you said Raf, i totally agree i think self-organization is a key property of social resilience and to self-organize very quickly and find sort of alternative solutions to things that were really locked right mm -hmm. so. maybe even getting back to this idea of self-organization i would say that uh, this might be a case in which um, having less resources forces you to find social solutions to this problem so in many Latin American countries where uh, there's a lack of income or a lack of technology, uh, the, the social responses are primed to, to, as an alternative to, to, to face the pandemic. For instance, local organizations of, of marketing and also producing as well, uh, even um, the distribution of education in, in different countries in Latin America has been uh, let's say segregated in in smaller groups, so they would avoid uh, being contagious or being uh, or getting the the, the virus. Uh, so I would say that social responses uh, are actually getting or proving better results than uh, looking at technology or increasing 
a certain amount of, amount of money or money or resources to face the pandemic. That's interesting. I mean, you're both talking a bit now about shifts happening, right? Mm-hmm. And in general, to simplify things, there's two kind of opposing views of how a crisis can affect a system, a society. Either the crisis just locks the system down in, in, in poverty or make things worse, or it provides a sort of window of opportunity to open up for something better, a better future. Do you think we're seeing signals of that? I know it's not perhaps a time to talk about this being an opportunity, but in some ways maybe you can just tell us about if we're seeing signals of possible positive futures emerging from uh, from COVID-19. And I'll start with you, Sibel. Yeah. <clears throat> so I guess that's, Albert, I think that in any crisis, those two things probably happen at the same mm-hmm. time, right? So you have like... Um, you know, you have like these massive disruptive effects of the COVID-19 crisis, you know, both in terms of that it's taking lives away and prematurely and and also that um, all the social consequences, like all the spill out over under other society sector that's becoming this big like system crisis. Mm. Um, but um, so I think they they both co-occur and we, we should acknowledge that, right? There's no right and wrong here. It's like, but the, at the same time that this happens, you know, exactly as in a personal crisis, right? When you go through a personal crisis, it's also an opportunity for you to reflect, to to reflect to see what could I have done different. It's also something that shakes a little bit uh, the state of where you are and gives you an opportunity to rethink. And I think, yes, we are seeing signs of that. Um, you know, I think, for instance, like the fact that uh, people have been forced uh, to to have social distancing, they have been sort of, for instance, it has, um, it has sort of triggered a need for people to be closer to nature, for instance. That's why people are kind of, you know, even people that are not food insecure, they are probably, they are many of them uh, cultivating food in their backyard uh, or they are going out on nature much oftener than they did. Um, I think this is kind of a sign of a, a potential shift, sort of different ways of reconnecting with nature, for instance. Um, then there's like, you know, other shifts, a bit like the examples that Rafa was saying, like different social innovations. Um, the, a little bit the examples I said from Nepal, also this thing like with increased digitalization, like the need of going remotely has also mm-hmm. done something, right? To every part of the world, but also a lot of countries in the global south probably expect, experiencing a lot of changes in that matter. Um, and I don't know, Rafa, if you have other, you probably have other. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, well, uh, something that is certain for me is that we are going to get out of this pandemic with a lot of bio fears, right? And we're looking at them right now. Uh, for instance, local communities in Mexico and everywhere in Latin America, uh, fearing the presence of bats because they were the main, you know, transmitters of the virus and so on. And people often even kill large communities of bats because of this fear. And uh, and so th- th- that that might be like the darkest side of the of the pandemic, but on the other hand, and following the the work of you know Per Olson and Karen O'Brien and others, even the work we are doing at the IPES uh, platform about uh, transformative change, there are three spheres of transformation, and the most difficult one to change is the one the personal sphere, the way in which we think about our relation with nature, and. Um, 
the pandemic is certainly changing the personal views of people on how we relate to nature. Um, the most, the, the, let's say the easier, uh, the easiest um, sphere of transformation is the, the technological one. So uh, this idea of making or building up uh, robust nesting systems was mainly based on the idea that technology was gonna change uh, the way we, we relate to nature. And now we're looking at social resilience as a source of changing these relations we have with, with nature. So um, in a way, I, I see a, a positive uh, pathway towards a more sustainable future given, of the, given this pandemic, right? And, and given also the conscience that we are gonna have another pandemic if we don't change the way in which we relate with nature, right? And uh, I think this message, message is permeated across the whole spectrum of social strata, right? And we're looking at it at the way in which local communities are actually changing their uh, attitudes towards uh, nature itself. Okay, so if, if you look in our crystal balls in the future, um, and it's, gonna, it's a complicated question, but I hope to get a, a quick answer from you both. Um, how do we build resilience um, in the future for these local communities to have resilience, not only against pandemics, but against all types of big systemic risks that might be emerging um, in the future more and more often? Uh, I'll start with you, Sibel. No, <laughs> that's a really big question. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, okay. Uh, so I guess that one of the things, uh, and I think that's a lesson from the COVID-19 also, it's like, okay, this is a, glo a global crisis, okay? Mm. We had one single global threat. Um, and in many places, the responses were actually quite similar. Like many countries, for instance, did lockdowns, okay? Mm. And that's, that was, a, you know, it was a kind of one-fits-it-all response. Um, and I would argue that um, we need different types of strategies. So, you know, yes, it was a single global crisis, but we have very many different contexts. And what we're seeing now is actually the negative effects from applying the same type of responses in these very different contexts because they have different realities. So we need what we call in, in uh, as resilience researchers, response diversity, mm -hmm. so sort of, you know, a diversity uh, of, we need more diversity on the way we respond to crisis and that is adapted to the, con to the context. So that's one thing. The other thing, and that I think it happened, actually, and it is happening during the COVID-19 crisis. And I think we start to see more collaboration between the grassroots communities that have been fairly isolated that now start to reach out to decision makers. And they are also sort of eager to hear them because they are the ones that actually sort of know what's happening in the front lines. And I think we need more of these collaborations, right? Better connection between sort of actors at different scales, a much better recognition of the role of this sort of grassroots communities. I mean, there are, there is, it's coming up evidence that in places where these sort of more organized grassroots groups don't exist, the effects of the, of the pandemics have been far worse. Mm. Okay. That's even in vulnerable areas where this, where these groups existed, there were still ways of adapting. Um, so I think, um, those two things. Mm. Do I have time to say a final one? No, Rafa. We can uh, we can jump off to Rafa yes. and we'll okay. see if we have some time, Sibel. But basically, you say <laughs> no, <laughs> it, it's, it's collaboration <laughs> and and also diversity. So we need to collaborate, but we still need to keep a diversity open. Yes. So not a single one size fits all solution, exactly. basically. Yeah. yeah. Rafa, any reflections you know, on that? 
people often think about resilience as this very complex theoretical uh, concept that is really difficult to apply in the ground, but I, I see it completely different. Um, and I would say the best way of applying resilience to local communities and building up resilience is, is thinking about the three musketeers of its components. Sibele already talked about the diversity and that's, that's, that's basic for applying resilience. But I would add that we need to improve the way in which local communities are connected to the system in general. Uh, so connectivity is the second uh, musketeer of resilience and we have to, and we have very good in, examples of empirical research that is improving connectivity across different scales. And the second one is, um, is feedbacks, which might be the most difficult one to understand, but it's basically the way in which we learn about the environment and the systems uh, uh, around us. So how do we connect, uh, diversify, and how we learn about the, um, the biophysical uh, sphere that we are all living in is basic for applying in a more practical way, the concept of, of resilience. And we, are, we have, with this pandemic, a tremendous amount of empirical evidence that suggests that we can change um, the feedbacks of the system internally and externally as well. So focusing on the three musketeers might be helpful for applying resilience to the ground. Thanks, Rafa. Um, and now a few months or six months into the pandemic, do, do you remain optimistic, Rafa? Yes, I think I, I think even though it's it's a horrendous crisis, and just as Sibel said, uh, different places are facing different challenges regarding the pandemic. I, I I still keep optimistic that this might be a great opportunity to change the way in which we relate to nature, um, and I would say that uh, changing this personal sphere is the most important lesson that we might be able to learn from this pandemic, and this keeps me optimistic, of, of course. And how about you, Sibel? How do you stay optimistic? Mm, I wish I was so optimistic. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I think I'm a bit of both, right? I think the problem is that we haven't seen yet the full negative effects of the crisis, right? We don't know. Um, we know from resilience research, for instance, that, you know, if you repeatedly are exposed, like constantly exposed to a stress, right, your resilience erodes over time. And this is what can happen here, right? Because we still we are still in the middle of it. We don't know, um, you know, when sort of restriction measures will disappear. And sort of if this continue, if we continue to have lockdowns, if we continue to have all these restrictions, the social consequences might, you know, uh, be become increasingly worse over time. So that's my big worry. But as Rafa, I also have hope. I mean, I have seen, like, we have seen in our work, Albert, I mean, many examples of fantastic new things happening as well. And I think that's, that is also, there is always a positive side of a crisis, right? I mean, it can be controversial to say that, but, but it does exist. Like, there is this side of transformation and opportunity for renewal. And as, exactly as Rafa, we are seeing, I think we are seeing signs of that, so... We are seeing new social configurations, uh, a raising up of grassroots movements um, and sort of this kind of new ways of reconnecting with nature. And that makes me hopeful. So, yeah. Well, thank you both very much for an extremely illuminating and interesting conversation. Thanks, Rafa. It's early in the morning in Mexico. <laughs> Thanks, Abel, for joining us here in the studio in Stockholm. Thanks a lot, Albert. It has been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Albert.
You have listened to Rethink Talks, a podcast series produced by the Stockholm Resilience Center at Stockholm University. For more episodes, head over to our website, rethink.earth.